0: This episode was brought to you by william mitchell audio now some people in the wrestling community have said that i'm gonna run out of william mitchell audio jokes just because this is a 34th william mitchell audio ad well here's a joke for you william mitchell audio is going to remix everything i just said into a fantastic bounce new orleans beat and then we will start the interview. Some people, some residents, some people.
1: My guest today is John Folek, a.k.a. The Traveling Nobody. He's a cargo pilot, a public speaker, and author of five books on psychedelic spirituality, including The Psychedelic Hero's Journey of a Traveling Nobody, The Organic Spaceship, colon, Opening a Psychedelic Door, and the forthcoming Unexplored Territory, colon, The Search for Home. What's up, John? Hey there, man. How are you? Fantastic. Thanks for being on the show.
2: Thank you for having me i appreciate it
1: i'm kind of bummed we didn't record our uh, vocal warm-ups we were doing while I was waiting to get started
2: <laughs> that's okay we spared the audience on that <laughs> uh
1: but i guess they didn't need to hear that but uh man before we get into i mean obviously we want to talk about vision Quest, psychedelic medicine so much of that stuff and like what you you know what you author your books on but i did want to just say a few things about just because you're a cargo pilot and i had a, a couple thoughts just when i was thinking about talking to you and one of them was that uh it's just it's just a maybe it's a personal thing but i think a lot of other people uh feel the same way and i would say that uh being a pilot is one of the rare professions where i actually feel more confident if the pilot has a country accent (laughs) and i don't and i don't mean like uh i don't mean like cletus from the simpsons but more like you know like matthew mcconaughey or like you know (laughs) all right all right all right this is your captain speaking you know like why do you think that is? Why do you think people uh, get comforted by that, that country pilot?
2: You know what? I'll tell you something on that note. When I started all of this, it, it was actually f- for kind of different reasons than uh, necessarily wanting to be a pilot or pursuing aviation. But anyhow, going to the point you just made, I thought that's what it would be comprised of. I really did. I thought there would be a bunch of cowboys in there who basically were telling nature, we're going to command you. We're going to use you for our benefit. We're going to fly through there in a way that we're not... Supposedly able to. And I then found out that that really wasn't the case. That wasn't as much of the culture. But it is interesting to see that you also thought of, of the cowboy basically being like the aviator.
1: I mean, I, you know, it probably comes it stems I, somewhat from the space program and its early mm-hmm. and like the way Chuck Yeager spoke a little bit like that Midwestern uh, dialect. But I mean, I was just thinking, like you know, I you know, and this is also just from a from a passenger standpoint. I know you, you fly your cargo pilot, so it's not so many people that are afraid of being in a plane in the back that you're trying to uh, assuage their fears by sounding real confident. But you know, when the pilot comes on and they're like, "This is your captain speaking," you know, like ain't nothing to worry about, and I'm like, oh, he's got it, <laughs> he he or she," you know, I'm fine with it. <laughs>
2: Yeah. I mean, I suppose in a sense, too, there is a confidence that goes behind that. There's a, almost like a persona that we're, we're describing, right? Like that that sort of country-esque persona. And behind that, there is a sort of manning your ship, a responsibility for it. And let's get real. I mean, hey, if you're a passenger, you want the captain to be fully confident and in charge <laughs> of the ship. That just puts everyone's mind and heart at ease. And just to clarify really quick, I was a cargo pilot. I just recently quit that job. And, and I'm now making, I think, what should be a major life transition hopefully away from aviation forever oh
1: okay well uh congratulations man but uh it did sound like a really cool job i hope you enjoyed it uh you know while while you were doing it i do have a a one one more question just uh maybe just a couple more about being a pilot right before we move to the next things i was gonna say like do you think that uh i mean after everything we've just said about the country accent trope for a pilot being comforting Do you think that's why they have such a great train system in uh, Europe? It's because no one feels comfortable hearing a European pilot
2: accent. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe. That might just contribute to, like, the collective unconscious of what puts us at ease. And when it's not there, then people take the train.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I would. (laughs) I don't want to hear, like, I don't want to be
0: over in Europe and have a pilot be like, Hello, it is I, your pilot (laughs) speaking. uh." (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> after my wine and my cheese i will take off for a flight
2: <laughs> yeah right again there's something just sort of about that in control presence of, <laughs> of the cowboy almost which is yeah it's definitely associated with like the american adventurer i suppose and and even into that archetype someone who has to some degree mastered the process and then and then that comes through in like the advancement west the cowboy itself is the archetypal character yep. so yeah, again, so it, it doesn't surprise to see that that reference would come up, in when you think about like the man commanding the ship, the pilot.
1: It's so coincidental that you would bring that up because I literally just uh, learned. I mean, I've I, I knew some about it, but I learned uh, more about this, and it has to do with like you know you know you recall like the Marlboro Man. Yes, course, and so. and being used as a great PR marketing tool to make people want to smoke cigarettes because they're like, I want to be like this Marlboro Man, but actually, you know, who invented? So it wasn't R.J. Reynolds and the cigarette manufacture you know uh, cigarette advertisers, prs that really came up with that it was the gun industry uh because originally they were doing so well selling american like smith and wesson's and all other these american-made firearms uh sold really well in America and then america just calmed down at the at the end of the night last of the 19th century you know civil war was over people didn't need in we still had a very agrarian culture mm-hmm. so uh farmers had guns but they would have like a gun they would have a shotgun that's all they needed because they used it to Shoot at coyotes, you know, and it wasn't there wasn't a war, and but you know, and then there was, for a time being, there was a, a lot of uh, <clears throat> conflict in Europe where there was you know being able to sell guns over there, but prior to World War One, there was a huge drop in firearm sales, and that's when the gun industry had this genius uh, marketing plan to promote the idea of the Wild West and the uh, heroic cowboy to put it in people's minds that aesthetically, they wanted to buy these guns. And so that was actually the genesis of that whole cowboy confidence. And I mean, and, and to this day, we yeah. still make movies about these mythical cowboys. And there really were not very many people like that.
2: <laughs> yeah, it didn't really ever exist. Yeah, and that goes to the idea of the whole Wild West never really being a thing the way it was portrayed too. I mean, I've definitely heard similar ideas on that, which may very well have been the case. Like you said, it was more of um, a portrayal of something that harnessed a certain character for various reasons or motives or whatever, but did it ever really exist? Perhaps in some way it did, but it was probably ever fleeting and, and certainly not the way it has been portrayed to us. Yeah. I and mean, it's John Wayne is, is an, he has, you know, he had
1: an appealing like persona, like that idea, that idea. And I, th- I guess what we might get into that more later too, because you do talk about the hero, the hero's journey. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's a lot of what John Wayne was. It's, I mean, that's the same thing. He's, yeah, He was doing the same thing that Star Wars was doing. It's, you know, right that journey. Okay, uh, one last thing about, uh, I, I want to make a guess. I want to guess what kind of plane you flew. Mm-hmm. So let's just say, hypothetically, you were going to fly, like, they decriminalized nature. And you were going to fly your plane. And, how, and you can tell me how many tons of mushrooms you could fit into that plane. And I'm going to guess what kind of plane you flew.
2: Okay. Tons. Well, here, let me just give you in thousands of pounds because that was our our limit that we used. Okay. And so we're not using the metric system. We're using U.S. If you're cool with that, yeah. I mean, I guess I could do tons too. But our max cargo load on the plane I flew was 7,500 pounds. So I guess half of that would be, what, 3,75 tons? So three and a half tons, basically. A B-52. No. <laughs> no, it was um, an Embry Air One Hundred and Twenty, which is a twin turboprop. And if it were in the passenger configuration, it would seat about thirty to forty people, just to give you an idea of its. Okay, size. yeah. Cool, man.
1: I'm gonna. I'm done. With, I'm done with plans. <laughs> <laughs> <Cool>. <laughs> but, uh, but I'm not done. I, I guess we're still doing kind of like the get to know you uh, part of this before we really dive into some of the deeper stuff and with the books and stuff. And I, out of curiosity, man, I have to ask when you, when you decide to write a book, do you, uh, are you the kind of person that can just sit down at a computer and begin typing? Or do you, uh,
2: do you like use a notebook and you write with a pen and then type it up later? Like, is that, yeah. To concisely answer it, it was all the computer. It just seemed to be the most deficient way. I can't stand redoing stuff, which of course you do. That is the entire process of rewriting, of writing is rewriting. Really you go over and over and over it again. I don't think there's a person who exists or ever has, who's ever written anything of value, or at least that they're comfortable with where they just sat down and boop, that's it. That just doesn't yeah. happen. It's not a thing. So yeah, I, I sat down at the computer and then from there, at least with the first book I went through, it was probably a process of 20 edits at least minimum that took me to get to a point where I was comfortable with it. But in short, I never really considered myself a writer, or I never necessarily set out to do any of these things. That's so much of what the journey was for me is is behaving, acting, living it out, the cycle out, and then uncovering these unconscious heroic elements that are parts of the journey. And then writing them, and and the process of that just helped me structure the the thinking about it, and helped me to see seemingly a br- blueprint that could be described as the hero's journey.
1: That's, uh, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I'm I'm kind of the opposite of you. So like, if I have to write, especially if it's something of any length, <clears throat> I do it entirely in a notebook with a mm. pen, and then I will sit down at a computer after that after the fact, and. Uh that's where, for me, like a lot of the ed- editing process actually happens, transferring it from paper to the, the computer, because I'll look and I'll see the, that a sentence is just stupid or needs to go or needs to change. But uh, obviously, like, that's kind of an archaic way to do it. And I feel like there's less and less people that do it that way anymore. Yeah, I think Stephen really King like- does it.
2: Yeah, I've heard that, too. I don't think it's really that archaic, man. It's just part of the process. I have done that before, too. If I've just transcribed, say, a journal entry or something like that. And I have found that it does create a little bit of a more concrete sentiment to word when you're writing in something like a journal when it's in pen, because it's more difficult to edit. I mean, even if you are going to type it up or whatever, when you're putting it in there, you don't want to write like absolute nonsense as you're doing it. Right. Whereas (laughs) For example, the first time I I started writing the first book, I literally didn't care what came out. I just was going to sit down and write 3,000 words a day of nonsense, of a stream of consciousness. I did not give a shit what it looked like, what it read like. That wasn't at all a part of it. It was just get this from here and, and here out onto the screen so that I could work with something or whatever. But just a part of the process. I mean, each and every writer or individual is going to have their own. So yeah, I definitely think that's the same basic process that you're describing there too. It's just, you're doing it in a slightly different way with putting pen to paper first and then going through your editing process on the screen.
1: I was actually, yeah, I was going to get into a little bit more of kind of what you just said too. And that's like just a little bit about your method, because it seems like you've, you've been like, you decided to start writing at a certain point. I mean, like, cause you, like you said, you, you weren't you weren't an author, you were a pilot for, you know, many years. And then one day, or, you know, we'll get, we're getting to that next too. But like, yeah. you did have uh, this genesis that created this reason and why you had something to say. And you're like, all right, I'm going to, you know, now I'm going to write it all down. But I guess the reason I'm so curious is from a person, from my point of view, like, and that's, I think, part of the reason why I am the kind of person who will write in a notebook before I'll even attempt to type it is because I have such uh, an attention deficit kind of situation going on. Which I don't think is a bad thing, and I actually, you know, it's. I think it's totally fine for people to have attention deficit. It's just. It just means you. You know, that's just how how you are. I don't think that should be treated with pharmaceuticals. <laughs> I believe it's a yeah, yeah. a natural way to be a human. And just some people are, some people aren't. And I don't know uh, exactly like how you feel on that subject, but I, w- I am always curious. How does a person sit down and literally, like you just said, like you? I mean, that sounded like you were had a very disciplined. Yeah. Uh, th- in, in the beginning, even though you said it was some stream of consciousness, 3,000 words a day is a giant undertaking for someone that's shifting career from pilot to
2: author. Right. Yeah, it was. And just, again, to clarify in that point, it, it was a definite act of will. It was a, a serious amount of discipline. I applied to the process for sure. I'm not trying to be false humble and undercut that because that happened. That was real. But it was shit. That <laughs> was turning out. I mean, it wasn't 3,000 polished Words. Yeah. And that was the attempt. It was sort of write a very bad first draft because now, of course, you just have something that you can work with. So that was the beginning of the process. And, and then as I evolved out of that through, through my first book afterward, I just in many ways evolved the entire stance from where I was coming from, in short, too. So just to give you a general idea, because I think it does tie into. To what I was doing, even in the way I was writing. At first, it was essentially a book that I wrote that was very autobiographical because I figured there's too much here to, to not tell. So I did so. And it was very long. It was about 127,000 words, 362 pages. It was yeah. just a lot. And so within this book, there were key high points, I would say, which were my pivot points in life, which all centered on using the, the plant psychedelics. And, and I don't mean to switch around the order of the interview. I know we will get to that, but just to mention them. Those were the the trip reports, right? Those were where I felt like the real meaning was within the first book. And so then after that, I realized this is just too much for a person to digest. And that was some of the critique that was sent my way by people in my circle. And I took it positively and said, yeah, you all are right. It kind of is a bit much. So if I still want to connect and I want to do it purely and I want to convey the meaning and morals I found within these lessons in an entertaining, almost campfire like way, how could I do this? And I decided that I would just write the trip reports. That would be it. So that gave birth to the next project, which was the Visionary Quest series of books, the the four books in the series. And hopefully that's what happens in those. They're very short. And each one of the chapters is about 2,000 words. And back to the idea of how many words per day or whatever is productive, I seem to find the structure of about a 2,000-word chapter and just way to put your thoughts on something forth productively that's not too much, not too little. I found that that worked pretty good, about 2,000 words. So then after that, it wasn't nearly as much of the just writing whatever is the stream of consciousness, it was more focused. And of course I still continually do edit that 10 to 15 times or whatever, but it's more polishing and less just total restructuring, restructuring. Coincidentally, too, I did read that I think it was Stephen King as well found for himself somewhere in his process that like twenty five hundred words a day was kind of his creative limit. And once I read that, I felt really vindicated. Like, oh, I guess I'm on to something. Yeah,
1: <laughs> if you're yeah, if you're doing what the king can do, man. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, um Man, you actually you did take us du- directly to right where I wanted to be on like in the in the next thing is a lot of that was really just my own curiosity on the writing process because uh, you know, I, I'm an aspiring author of of my own. So it's, it's great to talk to someone who's already like been through the work and knows how to get there, you know, and I'm going to have my own personal struggles with my own ability to pay attention for long periods of time, even though I feel like, you know, because of what it is, is I feel like I've got a million great ideas, but then when I try to set them down, they float away. And then I'm, you know, but enough about my nonsense, man. What I really wanted to ask was, uh, you know what it, it seems like to me from like from what I understand from like what I've read of uh, of yours and things like that is that uh, not to use I think I've used the word Genesis already like twice in this interview. You know, and This will be work. the last time I say that <laughs> when I wanted to ask was what was the Genesis event that started you down the path of writing a series of books about uh, vision quests and psychedelic medicine because it, it appeared to me that you were not like this you know you were to, you were an adult when you uh kind of discovered psychedelic medicine and and not to keep rambling on but it seemed like this wasn't like a lifelong thing this is more of like a more recent life event and right. i was wondering if you could explain like because obviously writing down 3000 words a day and creating all these books like that's a huge undertaking and you wouldn't do that unless you had, had um uh a pretty motivating life experience so can you uh, explain to Everyone just like, what got you to that place and got you writing these books?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You're right, though. You need a reason to do something like this. So what was it? It's a pretty pragmatic question. Heartbreak. That That's really what it was. And I try not to mince words at all or be overly ambiguous about it, that ever. That That's exactly what it was. So it's always, I guess, somewhat difficult to totally pin what it was that began to, to wake you up within your cycle, because what was it that caused that? What was it that caused that, right? You just do this forever. But obviously there are certain points on the journey that are undeniable in terms of you looking back and saying, wow, that was a fork in the road for sure. We all have these. Of course, every individual does. And if I'm to put a pin in what one of my major wake up was, wake up calls was in life, it was a heartbreak. So in short, I was with a, a woman that I loved. We were together and I broke it. It was my fault. I was an alcoholic. I was a materialist. I was an idiot in many ways that I won't drone on about, but I was unconscious. That That's really what it was. So the thing was coming to an inevitable collapse and disaster, and it did. And once that happened, that set me on the path to look for basically natural cures to heal not only the acute heartbreak, because I knew that time would sort of mend that to some degree, but yeah. the d- depression. And then not only that, but how could I have been so wrong about what I thought was so right for my entire life up to that point? I was about 25 when that happened. And I don't want
1: to, I don't want to interrupt, but I do, I do want to say like, I've, I feel like you did say that at the end of the time, we'll, we'll heal things to some degree. <clears throat> but if you don't change and if you don't learn, and if you don't start, uh, if you don't have an opportunity to look within yourself, time is not necessarily going to heal uh, a wound, you know, because that, that could just be some kind of, negative feeling or trauma that you just carry within you yeah. throughout the rest of your life if you don't face it. So I just, I do want to bring that up because and it seems like that's what you did.
2: That's a good pause point. And for clarification, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I just meant that the first week after I experienced that heartbreak, I was a disaster, man. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. Lost 10 pounds in a week. Legit. I had never experienced anything like that in my life that had no physical cause. It shouldn't have been happening. So this was a real reason for me to question my materialistic mindset and say, yeah. "What's going on here?" It's like it's like actually being sick. That's what a what a real
1: heartbreak is like. It's it's a, it's it's like you have fucking pneumonia or some awful you know illness, oh, man. Dude, it's terrible. <laughs> yeah, you, you but know. but yeah, but it's worse. Like at least pneumonia. Like it's like it's not like your heart hurts.
2: <laughs> no, I, yeah, and it's not like every. Drive that you have to live is stripped from you, too. With and I know what yeah. some diseases that could kind of happen, but yeah, for this sure, heartbreak that definitely seems to be high on like the, the hierarchy there. So that's all I meant. I knew that that was not sustainable, although I was very concerned when I was within the throes of it. But, but anyhow, I, I would like to just remark upon the point you made. Yeah, absolutely, man. I guess, like, when I was talking about the fork in the road, what I really meant there is there was an opportunity to me to say, Okay, look, you just walked into a big hole here. And and you did it to yourself. So you could do what most men do do. Honestly, at that age, they say, well, it's her fault. And yeah. that's, there are other fish in the sea and I'll just get out there this, that and the other. And then you, you just try and get, off. just try and get
1: more drunk, more materialistic yeah. and try and find right. more shallow, like a, sh- a shallower relationship to just, uh, that's it. Numb, you know, whatever, you know, cover it yes. up put That's
2: a bandaid to, on it. Yeah. And you just band <clears throat> right, bandaid, you sweep all of that under the rug because it's too difficult to deal with. And I, I just knew that that wasn't going to work. I didn't immediately quit drinking. It took me a couple of years after that, but it began the process of, of really me searching out the psychedelics. And then that unfolded itself into me beginning to write, which once I got to that point, it was very clear that I would never touch alcohol again once I started writing. So you see it all kind of domino affected into a growth essentially. And once I saw that process unveiling, I realized that the trap there for me was the unconscious programming that I was just bringing forth into my world, creating unnecessary suffering and chaos for myself. And I do think that once a life sees a trap, it won't continue to go into it. It says, I'm good on that.
1: Yeah. It's it's interesting you said that because I was actually going to bring up some, uh, some of the things that I think are like societal traps that -hmm. I think are, uh, I mean, that they're systemic in, and I, we live in a really interesting time right now because so many things are getting unveiled. A lot of these, you know, illusions are getting kind of washed away. A lot of, you know, the, a lot of these uh, politicians are going, are going mask off and just showing how truly, you know, little they care for people or the environment and whatever. But, uh, so I, I guess, man, like, wait, how did you even discover that? Uh, I mean, was it just like, did you just read about it or like, yeah. did the friend
2: tell you, or like how did you discover or also research. like, and I guess I have to ask, like, I'm assuming we were talking about mushrooms, right? Yeah. So mushrooms were my initial call into that space and my initial breakthrough experience. But yeah, to answer your question there concisely, that's exactly what I did when I was going through this heartbreak, I think pretty shortly thereafter it, I was Googling, how do I cure this or or depression at least? How do I end this?
1: So like, so the first time you had mushrooms was in your like late twenties.
2: Yeah. From the time I I went through that breakup, I was 25. I think it was uh, 2013 beginning of 13 is when that happened. I didn't actually first have the mushroom experience until mid 2014. So it was about a year and a half later, but yes, that was my first experience with that. I had never even smoked weed. Oh wow.
3: Okay. Yeah.
2: Have you, have you smoked weed yet? <laughs> or, yeah. Interestingly I, enough, I never did until after my first ayahuasca ceremony. And then I came back and then I first smoked weed and I just f- felt like it was something that I couldn't believe. I hadn't come into until I was, I was 30 years old. I was 30 that, until the first time. I,
1: was that's good. I, I had another author on here that uh, had an ayahuasca experience that he described mm-hmm. and it was Sounded very, very intense, man.
2: Yeah. <laughs> did you uh, did you leave the US to do it or did you do it here? I did. I went to Costa Rica to a center that I found that really spoke to me synchronistically and I, I booked it. And that was really what caused me to have to write. After I came back from my first ayahuasca ceremony, I just, I had to, I don't know any other way to express it. It was as if the narrative was commanding me in some sense. I couldn't just sit on the story. I had Because I knew there were too many universal truths and commonalities yeah. between all of us that had happened there. And I was just someone who was observing it, who was watching it happen with my character in this world, feeling it, of course, and, and then feeling it out and all of that. And then once I became introduced to the idea of the hero cycle, I really started to see how much value at least pragmatically that seemed to have to give you a sense of structure into where maybe the thing is going. And so then I just wanted to put that forth into the world and it's become my life path. So that,
1: that's the way to do it, man. And I, I hope that I get the opportunity at some, you know, I, uh, cause I've had the experience of like taking a hero dose, but in the middle of a city, like a very, very busy city and being out and about, and that can be a very frightening, unpleasant experience. <laughs> just, uh, you know, and like, it just seems like as soon as you like, things are changing more and more now, this is a while ago. I was still, I was, I might've been 18, but I think I was actually even still young enough to not really have to be that worried if I had gotten in trouble. But it was like this, as soon as I was like peaking, it was like, there were cops, like everywhere, I, everywhere I went, a cop would drive like around me and I was, you oh. know, on my skateboard trying to pretend like I was out skating but I was like I was in fucking outer space man <laughs> but, but I was I was rescued by some very kind college students and was able to uh because I'd, I'd lost my friends mm. like uh like I ended up alone uh you know in this big ass city and but yeah some uh really cool college students like let me come go into their uh crib and they're like hey man just chill out drink some water because I've been pouring sweat too you know like because it was the middle of the summer and i was just like you know then like they were just cool me like there's a a cool thing about skateboarding especially you know like then as now like where people will just kind of treat you as a friend just because they see you with a skateboard they're like all right i'm gonna help this guy out sure it's a culture yeah. yeah so i got i got a i needed about four hours of of a safe place <laughs> and, then, and then
2: I was good to go, man <laughs> Yeah, um, that, that's sometimes A necessary part of a trip, right? Sanctuary, refuge Hold up, it's time for a quick ad
1: From my own personal attorney And also the general Legal counsel
0: of this podcast um, Here it goes Hello, it is French Pierre, Tony Once again on my favorite podcast My huh? Mon ami, have you ever been on an airplane and noticed the pilot did not have a country accent? Did your pilot not sound like he was from Kentucky or Alabama or Tennessee? that must have been very traumatic for you. Sacre bleu, what will you do? You may be entitled to one million francs and a two-night stay at the Fontainebleau a day. Mon ami, French Pierre, we'll fight for you. Join. French Pierre in a class action lawsuit against the airline industry employing palace do not speak is comforting souverain dialect quand on pierre françois and fight for your woman on france and do not stay et devant un plus au voit and petit all right well thanks french pierre i guess uh you crazy for this one <laughs> um but once again, I have to say that French Pierre has fought for me in court many times. We always win.
1: And if you guys want to join a class oxygen lawsuit against every airline in the world, this is the one to join. So hop on and get your two million francs that you can transfer that to so much Dogecoin or Bitcoin or whatever Elon Musk is shoveling these days. Anyway, now back to the interview. But uh, ayahuasca being considered, you know, aside from DMT, being considered kind of the the most potent and life changing of the uh, hallucinogenic plants. It's definitely something you might want to do with people that can guide you in a place where you feel like it's a safe space, you know, rather than like, you know, like I did, like in the middle of Nashville or
3: (laughs) Washington, D.C.
2: yeah, given those two <laughs> options, yeah, you're gonna be better off with the tradition for, for ayahuasca within their circle. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so man, I I guess
1: like uh, kind of what I was just started to do, but I decided to cut myself off because I I don't I don't need to go into my shit, man. But I was gonna ask, can you tell? Uh, I'm I'm sure you've had some pretty powerful psychedelic experiences, and can you maybe just tell us a story of just of one, or
2: maybe I mean, if you got to yeah, tell man. it too. Yeah, yeah, n- no problem. I, I guess.
3: I'll
2: give you, like, a summary of of some of the most major ones and kind of hopefully stitch that together in in what's one seemingly entertaining trip report. So to kind of fill in the story, too, what it was from the mushroom that I really gained was curiosity. At first, it was something that I did seek to heal, and it delivered in that way. And then from there, I just began to realize that it, it is an intelligence if you treat it that way, or seemingly so, at least. So I began to investigate it like that, and I began to search for answers, and and I would mean that I would take generally high amounts by myself alone, closed eyes, and all of this to allow myself to experience the thing and, and commune with the mushroom, basically. So after doing that for a while, I eventually asked it at one point to see the all. I wanted to see everything. I wanted to know what is the basis of reality, and it showed me a figure eight. And this figure eight was essentially the representation of infinite intelligence, which traditionally might not be surprising. I mean, obviously it is an infinity symbol, Mm -hmm. but that was it. And it was kind of telling me, look, this isn't us per se. This isn't the mushroom. We are not this, but we are a branch of evolutionary life, not dissimilar in that way from how humans are a branch of evolutionary tree very different from humans, but they're both branches. But anyway, it was saying they knew more and they were showing me the representation of infinite intelligence. And so within that too, there was a feeling that was embodied. And it was something like, oh, wow, we really are the imagination of ourselves here for experience and all of this. And at that point in time, that's about as far as I was able to go with it. That's about as mature as my interpretive structure was. And it left me with a very glass half empty take on the whole thing. I just felt kind of apathetic about it. I felt, huh, well, that's it. Yeah. That's all we've got. (laughs) Yeah. So it was unfulfilling in some sense. So from there, that's why I began to think about investigating mother ayahuasca. And it was just as simple as, well, you can't trust any one source. You got to triangulate your information and, and come to an understanding. So then I went to ayahuasca. I got a similar teaching, but it was filled, glass overflowing with with love. It was the same kind of thing, but in the most positive of ways. And that component was somewhat missing from the mushroom experience. And then that's what caused me to really start to think about the heroic cycle, think about our lives, what we're doing. If there is a home, a source that we're all coming from and returning to without even consciously being aware of it. And then what the blueprint of that unconscious cycle might actually look like for, for man, not just me, of course, but for, for all of us. And this just happens to be one iteration of the story. And I began to just uncover more and more of that. And it seemed like that was a a real happening within the framework of reality that was going on. And the more I dug into this, I saw that these patterns of behavior were unconsciously acted out in my own life. And then through writing, I saw that you know, And it just gave you a little bit more confidence in the fact that perhaps it is a map. And I'm not making the claim that the heroic cycle is the only map. It's certainly not. But it is definitely a map that seems somewhat pragmatic for modern people, too, being that we have tasks, we have things to do, we, we think in goal-oriented terms, to actually move us closer into understanding, basically into development. And that's something like how I think about the process. It's evolutionary love, it's growth toward the, the ultimate return home where the, where the hero ends their journey. So that was sort of like in a nutshell, the heavier trips that really brought me to where I, I, I am now. And I'll just give you a kind of cherry on top of that, a little bit more concrete. The last trip I had was out in the desert of uh, Texas here, Western Texas. I went out there for four days and nights. Nice. I felt, yeah. <laughs> I felt the call to do this in solitude. <clears throat> There were a few reasons for this. Obviously, the world's been kind of shut down. So the various camping events I went to where I would previously unplug and reunite with Source and and Soul and such, they weren't available. So obviously, there were practical reasons that I was seeking to do something else. But I got this call to go out there. Now, I had never done anything like that in my life before. I had never really even driven off-road before. So it was a real call to adventure to me. I went out there. I... I fasted for the first two days. And again, I didn't really know what I was going to do. Of course, I came prepared. I had the site booked for four days and nights, but I had no idea what was actually going to unveil itself or how I was going to handle it. I didn't come to it with an agenda other than merging with source. I had known it exists. I know it exists, but I wanted to really get into it and see some of its code or something. Yeah. So that's what I came to the table with. Throughout the journey, I was presented with a couple miniature heroic cycles, a couple road of trial events and so forth and so on. But I would say that what I could pull from that, what the whole process really showed me was that whatever it is that you think you are is a reflection of intelligence that and the coherent process of reality itself, they're the same thing. And the lines between those things really get blurred and completely dissolved when you, you unplug from everything else and you sit with nature you sit with it you sit with the transcendent then you start to see it
3: and, and
1: i'd like to course- just uh just to just to buttress what what you were already saying okay. and just the experience and i've uh had the personal experience of just uh solo camping and fasting as a combination without having any kind of uh like additional without any psychedelics or anything to like go beyond that alone and the experience of Solo camping and fasting by itself is very, very eye opening. It really, especially if, if you bring a journal or something, right. and you come when you come back to uh, civilization, and you look at what you wrote, you're like, you know, I did not realize those thoughts were in my head. You know, this it really brings it out of you, man. You need that's it's great to be able to unplug like that. Yeah. And uh, and going back, just one more, I do want to say one more thing about what we were talking about early when we were talking about the actual mushroom experience and there's a there's a thing and anyone that's experienced it knows that there's a <clears throat> it's not necessarily a flaw with it but it's a it is a thing that and i think over time especially if you do like a meditative process and you try to incorporate more and more into your life you can bring back more of this knowledge and maintain it or be able to understand your experience and uh hold on to the understanding because one thing that can happen very easily that's happened to me before is having a very profound enlightening uh an experience unlike anything I've ever had where I understand something in a way I've never understood it before, but once I'm no longer tripping, I can't, it's like, my mind has gone back to being too solid and rigid for me to uh, have the thought anymore. And I have, I have one good example. And this is a, this is an LSD experience. Mm -hmm. And I was in, uh, I was basically on a little sand dune and I was just, holding the sand in my hand and just kind of letting it slide um, you know, pour out through my fingers. And then it's funny, you, you brought up earlier, the, the concept of infinity. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it was the one time I ever truly, cause everyone gets infinity. We get it. It's, you know, infinity means forever and ever and whatever. But in, while I was looking at the, the sand in my hand, I was like, I could totally imagine how each grain of sand was a complete universe in and of itself. Mm. And Inside of that grain of sand, there was another, like, um, you know, the whole universe all the way down to a microscopic level. And there was another planet earth and another me holding a a handful of grain of sand. And it went infinitely like that in both directions. And because I was on enough LSD at the time, I understood this like in a full comprehensive way where it wasn't confusing. And it wasn't just, that didn't sound like babble. I was like, Oh, I get it. Like infinite, uh directions in in time, space, size, everything. But you know, a few hours like, you know, the next day, I was I could still recall having had that those thoughts, but I could no longer comprehend them the way I did during that moment. Does that make sense?
2: Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. You're given the feeling when you're in that space, I think that's definitely what I was picking up on what you said there. You, you understood it. Like you had that deep comprehension of the lesson at hand or of infinity. And yeah, I do think you're right on that. We can talk around the edges of that with normal language and concepts, especially from those of us who have been there, because we know like, oh yeah, I was there at one point, but that's it. That's all we can do. We can talk around the edges of it. You can't really convey that experience. And I think too, to even try to do so to someone who hasn't had it and who's not interested in understanding it's impossible. Or just who hasn't had it. It's an impossible. I guess we could bring it back to when you
1: when we were discussing heartbreak earlier. If you've never had a true heartbreak, you can't describe to someone else what heartbreak is. Even if you, I mean, you could say words, you could say it. Feels really really bad. I was very very sad. It didn't feel good. You know, you can say oh, whatever, but until someone else, they've experienced it themselves, they're never going to have that comprehension. And the same thing for love. And like you were saying, that or like what like, like what I was saying, the same thing for a hallucinate, uh, you know, hallucinogen or psychedelic experience where you understand a con, like a a very cosmic natured concept. Like, the, like, for instance, what is infinity or am I, uh, what kind of being am I, what, what are we, are we, you know, besides, are we just evolved apes or are we like literally on a plane of consciousness and like, there's something behind that or, mm-hmm. or thinking like, what is behind my eyes, you know, like, so I don't know, That does that, right.
2: I'm kind of getting the. the- yeah, 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 because you, again, you have a direct mainline understanding of these things they're not really concepts in those spaces and just to talk about like the absolute top of the the value hierarchy there when it comes to some of these ideas it it is like the infinite the all the transcendent what what is that i can't tell you. You can't tell me. It's a thing we can't really talk about because language is too encapsulated with, with its limitations. It just won't do it. It is an experience and you can't have it. And I would say one other thing on that too. It is funny if we were to talk about infinity, I think you're right. In most ways, people kind of know like, oh, it means like a, a mathematical anomaly, like in many forms of physics, when they run into infinity, it kind of shows them like, oh, we, we screwed up somewhere here there's an error or whatever, or just thinking about very large numbers. It's like, oh, the infinite, like a little kid might say, you know, infinity, I yeah. you, you know, whatever. <laughs> but the reality is too, when you're in these spaces, you might have different layers of your mind understanding some of that, like you said, with the Sand in your hand that was like representation of of a vast amount, but of, of <clears throat> but more than that, even being a number or a concept or words in general, it is a feeling. You know, it is an experience. It is a real essence. So it is funny that we'll even think about it in terms of a number. That's just to showing you kind of where the culture's mind is. It has to be, it has to be a number. No, it it's something other than that. It's a real experience, which is just immediate and direct and available to all of us too.
1: Yeah. That's, uh, that's one of the, and that's what I was going to get into next. And that, I, what, I, that I feel like a lot of what's going on is we have been, uh, we've been indoctrinated, uh, and I, uh, it such an interesting thing happened. This was just totally by accident. And I had no, intention of bringing noam chomsky into this conversation but uh right before i was going to interview i was i had been listening to a speech by noam chomsky uh i think might have been yesterday and he was speaking on his belief that the uh, human mind has limitless potential for creativity and it is uh it's systematically beaten out of us by our regimented school systems and our you know our workforce structure and we are essentially indoctrinated to believe that our self-worth is simply whether we are a valuable producer and consumer, you know, uh, it it gives us, you know, these bizarre, uh, the, these, the hierarchy of things that thinks you should be, you know, the highest thing you can be is a person that has a job that produces, and then you take what you're given and you consume. I mean, and and I just brought that up uh, to say that, you know, in my opinion, in in my opinion and my experience, uh, that is one of the first, illusions that uh, starts to slip away when someone experiments with psychedelics. It's one of the very first things that happens is you stop having such a uh, belief in like just money and, you know, capital, all that stuff starts to become Mm -hmm. absurd all suddenly to be like that, that I have a monetary value or that, or that's even should be my concern. And that's like sophomoric to a certain extent, you know, to be like, money ain't real, blah, 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 you know, but, but you really do. I think if you, if you're on psychedelics, the last thing you super give a shit about is like your portfolio or, you know, or what you're, it's, that's not what it's, that's, it, it takes that veil from your eyes. I don't know if you, if you, uh, if you have any thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I've run up against many of those parallels to what you're talking about, even romantic relationships. I've thought about this before in some of the mushroom space, how absurd it, it is that we culturally demand that we find one other person to link up with for the rest of our lives and evolve throughout life with that one other being. And if we don't have this, at least the cultural ethic there sort of as well. What is wrong with that person? If you've ever been single for quite a bit of time, you kind of know that that's a real thing. Like you're you're treated differently. When you're in a relationship, you have a different world of experience. It's almost like the world sees you a little bit differently. So that is something that the mushroom kind of brought to my attention. That's independent from my own views. I've actually do think that that has its place in the world. I really do. Yeah. Monogamous sort of relationship. And certainly for myself, I I think, but anyway, like it is funny how the psychedelics do start to just slice through, like you're saying, some of those cultural uh, attitudes we have that are, are definitely based on something, but that perhaps we hold as being too firm for reasons that we don't understand directly and individually. And that is the key. I've had this even with something as trivial as clothes, like for example, taking some mushrooms and being at a strip club where I've had the unrelenting urge to just take my clothes off. Like, why not? Yeah. All these ladies are doing it. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's cool. No no one has a problem with them. Do I? I certainly don't. But, of course, if I were to do that there, there would probably be a problem with me taking my clothes off. But, you know, those kind of impressions, they come to you. Well, yeah. Stroke
1: strip club bouncers are notoriously not cool.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they wouldn't be a fan of that kind of behavior. But on that note, too, At some of the various Burning Man events uh, that I've been attending around the Austin, Texas area. That's where I live now. Oh, they do that?
1: I thought you, uh, I did not know that they had like, uh, like secondary
2: or tertiary events or whatever. They do. They have regional burns. I think they do them all over the country. But certainly in Texas, yeah, they have smaller ones. Now they're much, much smaller than the big Burning Man event. Uh, I've always thought
1: of uh, Burning Man as something that
2: I would very much
1: enjoy, but it's prohibitively expensive just just from what I've read and like where it's located, and it's like, oh man, I have to fly out to Nevada. I have to mm-hmm. rent an RV. It's you know, and it's like, is that do I want to make my do I want to cancel two entire you know trips to make
2: one trip happen that I might may or may not really like? So I don't know. Yeah, and then you're gonna be in a desert for a week. It's, yeah, it's rough. The conditions there. Are, I've never been to the proper Burning Man. I've just been to the the regional burns in Texas, which again are much smaller. But, but in essence, the point I was making there is it's not at all uncommon for people to, to walk around naked, at least in the warm weather ones. So what is this? What are they doing? Well, what I was shown there is going back to the idea you were bringing up. You were talking about money. I was talking about clothes. It's like, what do they have to do with each other? But it's that there are these attitudes we have and we've... Put forth through our culture, which makes sense. I mean, you don't want to be seeing naked people running around every day. Yeah. With your day to day life. But <laughs> at an event like that, it's a social experiment to allow yourself to do whatever it is that you will do. And people do that. And so I remember asking just myself or the mushroom, why? What is this? It's an understanding of the capital S self, I think. I think that's the embodied attitude that people who choose to walk around naked is. Now, you might just say it's an expression. Yeah, sure, it is. Expression of what? Yourself, sure. What self? You yeah. know, I think that just keeps going. And the, the more you dive into that, you just see, oh, they get it. On some level, they just they know that they are the, the transcendent, that their fellow man is imagination of themselves, and therefore, why not shed culture? And so that's sort of what comes up. But yeah, not to get us too far off. I'm sorry, your initial. Yeah, the psychedelics definitely cause you to ask questions. Sometimes they're funny and not fruitful questions. Sometimes. There are questions that might seem trivial and trite, but if you don't have a direct answer <clears> to an understanding of, it might really give you what you need to, to grow. Hold up. It's time to reach into the mailbag. Every
1: week on the show, we check the mailbag to see if anyone has written a message to the show, and then we read the message
0: out loud. This week's message comes from Lopes." Sardlopes. Sard Sardlopes said, <clears throat> I've spent over $15,000 on real shoes until I found Chicks Vip. Their reps are all same as real shoes. So now, I've been buying reps from them. I'm done giving my hard-earned money paying resale to
1: little rich kids. Thanks for writing the show, Lazard Lopes. And I hope that uh, you enjoy the podcast. <laughs> and now back to the interview. No, I I believe everything you said was exactly on track. And I, and, is, and I, I don't want to come across, like I'm saying that being a productive member of society is, is not a valuable thing to be. Of course it is. And that's not, and that's not what I mean by saying that, uh, you know, if you're having a trip, you know, and it's particularly profound or strong and you think, that like why you know why is my purpose to just be my job and you know don't i have value as a like a conscious being you know like these are the kind of things that like you these sound like simple ideas that everyone would necessarily walk around with every day and always believe these things and think these things but that's not true you forget all this stuff because we're constantly being beaten down by you know the societal structure that's no longer it's very unnatural like the way we live is unnatural. It's very domineering, you know, and this, and not to get too deep into uh, criticizing capitalism, but, you know, <clears throat> because I mean, I, you could take this criticism, I think, to practically any, almost all forms of government that we have, you know, globally, that you've got the people that are the dominant, you know, on top, you got a small handful of people on top and you got a bunch of people on the bottom doing all the labor, <laughs> you know, and it's, and obviously, you know, anyone that's that thinks and reads and stuff can like see that. But I, I do believe if you're oftentimes when you take the opportunity to, you know, use your mind in a way you don't normally do that whole thing, not only does it you know because you might because I already believe it's wrong in my natural state. But when I'm uh, kind of in an expanded consciousness, like state of mind. It truly does seem like an absurd way to live. Like, mm-hmm. why are we? Why are we? We as a human species allowing this? So, mm-hmm.
2: yeah. Interestingly, too, on that point, exactly. It is funny at those events, the burning events. You can't buy anything other than ice for whatever. That's the only thing you could actually purchase <laughs> with money. Everything else is just straight up gifting, exchange, and I guess barter but it's not even really barter you everyone's gifting everyone each other i so, think that's a cool concept man I yeah. Think. yeah it is it's one of their 11 concepts at least in the regional burns i go to There are like 11 principles and radical gifting i believe is one of them but if everyone comes to the table with that as the idea well you're going to have a productive experiment there and that's generally how they go
1: i mean and uh ideally you know if this kind of thing was were to spread it and it was more popular and you know more people were uh experiencing these kind of events uh, I mean this is just a guess but it's a you know it's a it's a theory theoretically what could happen is that people would ultimately it, it would spread that people would find it uh more they would they would appreciate giving and being uh generous and being and doing uh volunteer style work more than constantly worrying about where they stand in the capitalist hierarchy. You know, he might be like, you know what? I have some free time. I'm going to go do some, I'm going to go, go to a homeless shelter where people have absolutely nothing and do something for them where I don't necessarily gain capital. I
2: don't know. Just a thought. That is the cool thing about these events too, is you could plug into the situation you just described and behave in a way that you most likely wouldn't in your day in and day out life. And you see everyone else doing it too, just straight up through volunteering. Like you just said, the last event I went to, I, I did volunteer when I was there and I normally wouldn't do that in in the world or whatever, but I seen there, well, that's just what people do. That's how everyone makes it go around. Everyone basically volunteers. And because of this, because everyone's willing to contribute a little, everyone else can have a lot of this, this beauty. So it, it's a way to see it. And I'm not trying to make the case that this is the way society should be or anything like that. I'm not qualified to, to make such distinctions or make such claims, but it's something that's certainly worth experiencing and just, considering, I guess, when you see it more, even than the consideration, though, is the experience to just see how that thing unveils itself and, and how you feel about it. You know, it jives with some people at, at a very deep level. Interestingly too, when you get into these places, you know what they tell you, you're usually given a hug and they, they say, welcome home. Oh, that's so nice. Right. <laughs> home. Yeah. Going back to the idea, like where we are all coming, you know, it's almost like I felt in the past that I've had to do whatever I've had to do in the material world and culture, which is just, furthering your, your development and your growth, obviously through life. But I've always inherently felt like it's not the real main points, like these other vision quests that at least my character has gone on. Those are the real points of meaning or the pivot points in my life. And so when I get to an event like this, I feel like all the other stuff just got me there. You know, it's like I wake up when I'm there, whatever, my higher self kind of thing. And then I see, I see what's happening. Like, oh, okay, now I know what to do for the next six months or whatever. And, and then I just go and make that happen. That's a work and culture. But then come back and now you're ready to, to take the next thing on, to evolve, level up a little bit more, you know, so forth and so on. And it is funny that other people there seemingly in some way, they understand that. And it's all encapsulated when you walk in with a welcome home.
1: Actually, you know, I, <clears throat> I do want to pivot just a little bit to another, uh, and I think I, I don't know how much of this you actually get to in, in your books, just in a, on a, from a general level, but I know that you were saying like you were uh, first introduced to mushrooms because, you know, it can be used as an antidepressant or uh, as something on that journey. And I was wondering if you could speak some more on the ways that uh, psychedelics are being used to treat, uh, for instance, like psychological ailments uh, such as depression or anxiety. I know there's a, you know, a huge movement with microdosing right now and, I, I'm fascinated by it, and I wonder if you have any, anything to share on that subject.
2: Yeah. Johns Hopkins and MAPS, Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, are the two main institutions that are working with psychedelics to show their benefit for a various amount of disorders people have. PTSD, not the least uh, of them, and then, of course, even obsessive-compulsive c- disorder, the active within the mushroom, psilocybin, has been shown to be useful for helping people kick addiction. Psychedelics in general have traditionally been shown to be useful for this. Uh, something like smoking, I believe there's been shown to be an 80% cessation rate with the use of psilocybin and a firm intention to quit smoking, which is just absolutely remarkable. The founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill Wilson, was someone who was trying to get acid into the the, pr- the protocol of AA oh cool. it started. Yeah, interestingly. But of course, the tides turned back then, uh, LSD went legal and then that wasn't possible. I think the bigger picture point there is that there's nothing inherently about the chemicals and the psychedelics that cause you to not be an alcoholic or to want to quit your nicotine abuse. That isn't a real thing as far as we know. But what is real about these transcendent experiences is you get a look at, at yourself. You get a look at your patterns of behavior, what you've been doing, what you are doing. And if you pair this up with a real intention to to grow and to improve, you come back with the undeniable laundry list of knocking out the activities of folly that you were engaged in previously. So just simply wanting to eat better, Or just knock smoking off, or quit alcohol, or just treat people nicer, including yourself, loving yourself a little bit better. Those are not at all uncommon reports, and I would say they constitute the basis of what a legitimate medicinal healing might be in a very organic form. It's interesting
1: that you uh, what you just said about uh, about just being nicer, because I was just thinking about um, you know a lot of how this probably does work. Obviously, I am not a medical doctor, and I have no, I don't have haven't done you know have no involvement in the research, but I can, you know, from a, from a layman's point of view, I feel like I can make some pretty educated guesses. And I think a lot of that too is, you know, we create these neural pathways and a lot of that, that's what, you know, when you have alcoholism or uh, smoking or uh, just uh, behaviors that are toxic, for instance, like, you know, if you've got road rage, you know, and you go out and you just, all you do is like, you get in your car, you drive around, you start screaming at everyone and you're angry And the more you do that, the more you reinforce that neural pathway that makes you believe that every time you're in your car, you are angry. Until it gets to the point where you're nobody on the road is doing anything to you. It's not that's no longer it's no longer an external factor. It is entirely your neural pathways that are making you behave in that way. And like I said, this is just postulation. i I have you know I, I've don't I don't know the research or what's behind it, but my guess is a lot of what uh, things like mushrooms lsd ibogaine all these things that they use uh in therapeutic uh settings what it does is it gives you an opportunity to to step away from your natural neural pathway because your mind is already functioning differently on the hallucinogen and like you said you have a chance to look at yourself and you also have a chance to create a new neural pathway mm-hmm. so that's my guess i don't and
2: Yeah, I don't know anything more on that either when it comes to the hard science of it. It seems to make a lot of sense. Does it not? I mean, just what you said. Even if you think about listening to music, a lot of times when people hear music when they're having a psychedelic experience, or even with weed, too, for sure, you might think, I have never actually heard music before. Yeah. The first time it's, I'm, I'm actually yeah. hearing it. So, even in the way that we would convey that in language, which is common, it seems to somewhat support that. Like, is it potentially perhaps that we are creating new neural pathways for the information to come to us, come to our awareness? Why wouldn't that make sense? It certainly does. I mean, whether or not it's actually happening, who knows? In all honesty, when it comes to a lot of, of that, I'm certainly not an authority on the hard science behind this stuff. I'm just some dude that's that's all I am who's began to (laughs) to use these things hard and heavy and then actually put the lessons to to play and and live it out as much as I can and then write as authentically transparently as I possibly can about that so I think like at the beginning of the process it makes sense to, to do your research but as far as I have found in the beginning of my journey there is nothing but basically physiological and psychological benefits that can come from productive use of the psychedelic, if you're using it with the appropriate set and setting, and you're you're attempting to truly learn.
1: I mean, uh, oftentimes some of the best journalism is created in that way, where the uh, you know where the journalist or the writer, or I, I don't know how, how you think of yourself as an author, but where you put yourself in the situation and you experience the experiences firsthand, and then you write what they are. Mm-hmm. You know that can be far more enlightening than any medical journal. or you know something that's just real cold uh i I did want to step back one more time to talking about the neural pathways thing and because there there's and this is hard evidence you know that uh teaching and this is like this is a form of meditation it's very very simple it's not deep meditation like which i think we're about to get into in a second talking about uh how you've combined uh, psychedelics with meditative practice but um it's been proven. And I know that this was something they were trying to do with police, too. And I think that there's a, a whole study that with a some group of some police department where they were teaching police uh, straw breathing, uh, which is it's where you breathe, uh, breathe in like you're breathing through a straw and you breathe out through your nose. And like when, when you're getting very angry or upset, you know, you're about to get, you know, escalate a situation. And this doesn't just apply to police. It applies to literally anyone, <clears throat> whatever situation. Is making you angry, you're upset, and you do the straw breathing meditation, which is basically just a breathing practice. So breathe in with your lips pursed like a straw, out through your nose, do it to a count of like 10, something like that. And it's shown you know, irrefutably to like lower the blood pressure, lower the agitation, all of that. And that is just a tiny little thing you can do. That's just such a tiny type of meditation. So it's it only stands to reason that with uh, much, you know, much deeper meditation, especially combined with uh, other tools that you know might be available, like, if, for instance, like mushrooms or whatever might be available, you could really, really uh, change your entire life, especially if you have toxic anger, violence issues like uh, severe depression, it makes it makes perfect sense that these things can be addressed with things other than uh, a bunch of fucking antidepressants fucking yeah. your brain up. And so I did want to ask you, uh, like, just, you know, I I meditate, but I'm not a, I am by no means a master of it or very, you know, very great. But I do. I try to meditate daily. I don't, but I don't have a long practice. You know, I I do. The longest I'll go, maybe is 30 minutes a day, but, you know, even that's good for you, you know, Uh, even even five minutes is good for you. Um, But I want to ask about your process. Like, what is your process? For your meditation practice?
2: In short, I don't have a a very disciplined meditation routine. I try to do it. I probably get a couple in a week at least. But as that has paired up with my use of of the plant medicines, it has just seemed to me that meditation is an emptying. And this is even without diving into what meditation is. I mean, I know that there's just a ton of different ways to describe it and, and a bunch of different techniques. I never particularly dove into any of them and, and really did the, the dive into different types of perhaps like transcendental meditation versus this, that, or the other, whatever. It just always intuitively seemed to me that you sit down, you shut up and you empty. And that was basically what I did with the whole thing. And, and that started as well when I went through that heartbreak too. So on and off over the past eight years or so, I've been engaged in that. Now taking that emptying process and pairing it up with the psychedelics, you have instituted a type of discipline for yourself and all that that is, is to eliminate sensory input. It's very simple. That's it. So instead of interacting with the sensory world, you're just not, you're sitting down, you're shutting up, you have the medicine within you and you're going to let it show you what it needs to, and you're going to be open to it. And there are many elements of meditation that, that pair up nicely with this. For example, perhaps not clinging to anything that happens, perhaps you see something beautiful well you let that be you let it float by like the bubble like that's the meditative thing too right bubbles are yeah. floating by you constantly and You just kind of let them go or cars or yeah i use a i use a river okay yeah and the same idea there applies all of that is just potentially jacked up high and heavy especially <clears throat> with a heroic psychedelic dose and but the same techniques generally work so you let the thing go and you just you attend to your observance of this infinite suchness before you or something without clinging. So in that way, it is sort of like a non-attached pattern of behavior. Now that sounds really streamlined and perfected. It's not in practice when you're actually doing it. I mean, of course, you'll catch yourself wanting to go here or there, but then you become aware of those patterns within you. And I think that's where the real work is. You just kind of try to bring yourself back to center. And that's where I would say meditation or a practice of it could be invaluable as paired up with these states.
1: I'm convinced, man. <laughs> Actually, uh, <laughs> yeah. I've, uh, I do have to admit that, uh, for the most part, I've only really used, uh, psychedelics in a recreational capacity. Uh, but I have been fascinated for a very long time now with the micro dosing, uh, uh, community and what they're doing with that, especially I, I, like I personally have some issues with like getting too anxious or, uh, also even anger, you know, things like that, like that I believe, uh, you know, I could work on. So but I'm also uh, curious, mean, I might just do some little stuff on my own, just do a, a little transcendental meditation, take a cap and a stem and uh, see if I can get a little bit of uh, self-awareness going.
2: <laughs> well, why not, man? And, you know, to just on that point, when I started this whole process of waking up or whatever, as I told you, it took me about a year and a half before I actually used a psychedelic or the mushroom. So I was meditating in between and I did start to get the closed eye two-dimensional geometries before me, it was faint. And uh, and I found that it, it grew a little bit with proportion to my discipline with the exercise of, of meditating. But then when I dove into the mushroom, I saw like, oh, that really pops the can off that or the top off that can of worms. And it really lets the whole thing come out. It, it seemed to me like that was meditation on steroids, just jacked up. And, and then I knew that that work I had done was preparatory, but it, it was in no way able to actually prepare me for the immensity of that experience. But at the same time, with continuing to practice it or whatever and work the two things together, you can begin to build an almost, uh, dare I say, competence in the space and, and kind of see how to navigate. And I just mean within your own patterns, your thoughts and, and in the space that you're actually in. Oh,
1: I, I agree. It's a, it's a, it's a skill building exercise for, for certain. Uh, John, I have to say this. We are dangerously close to the lightning round. And let me explain to you how the lightning round works. This is where I begin to ask questions uh, at a rapid rate and you don't have stop. you don't, you can't stop and think you just have to gut reaction, whatever you think the answer is and just say just whatever comes to your mind first, man. So I'm just going to hit it. And you can always say pass. That's always a a part of this, the game portion of the podcast. You can just be like, I don't want to answer the question. Move on. So, and this is not an easy. This is not an easy lightning round. Let's <laughs> so, do it. I'm excited. <laughs> all right, I'm gonna hit you, man. With the first one, John, what is the meaning of life? <sighs> Growth. I love it. Uh, moving on. When I uh, this is just a, a quick anecdote about me, and then I'll just get into. I'm just gonna ask you, just to preface it. When I was younger, I had a few experiences where uh, where mush, with mushrooms uh, had helped me to make some breakthroughs and advance my ability in skateboarding. That was my main sport when I, and, and uh, I was just, you know, like things were like a, like a stair set would no longer seem as intimidating. I'd be like, Oh no, I kind of get the geometry better because I'm on mushrooms and I, I'll need more stairs. <clears throat> what I wanted to ask is, uh, do you have any experiences where psychedelics helped you to advance your physical intelligence in that way?
2: Mm. Yeah. By catalyzing interest in myself and understanding itself. And I hope that's not too vague of an answer, but they light a fire under your curiosity, um, lantern if you will, and just really allow your interest to, to be pursued with care and willpower without those experiences. What's the point? Why bother? I mean, you, look, yeah. We talked about earlier, you kind of need a real good reason to be doing some of this work and, and what is that? And they give you a real reason. Um, do you have any opinions on synthetic hallucinogens? No, I don't. I'm certainly not a person who's going to make any kind of distinction between organic plant medicines being natural versus those that aren't unnatural and therefore bad. I would not I would not do such a thing. So, no, I don't. Cool. Um, does the earth have a consciousness? Yeah, I think so. Or it seems to in some of these spaces. Yeah, absolutely.
1: All right. Uh, what is one of the best scenes you've seen in a movie – depicting a psychedelic experience?
2: The Doors with um, Val Kilmer starting the movie out. He, it's right at the beginning of the movie. It's the first time you see the character of Jim Morrison played by Val Kilmer. And this is done by Oliver Stone, The Doors movie. And he, he's just standing there. And I think he's reading a book. He's not high in the scene in the movie or anything like that, but it just has a feel of that wanderer, that hero, that individual just being there sort of outside of context. You use a viewer just given this frame and, and you don't know anything about him, but like somehow that resonates deeply with how we find ourselves in this world. We just come into consciousness and we don't know where we came from, where we're going, any of this stuff. And that really just encapsulates it so well. And I think that that would be the best example I have.
1: I need to watch that again. I, I have seen the doors, but it's been so long that I do I don't recall the the scene you're talking
2: about. Yeah, the opener where they just first show Val Kilmer standing there with a book by the side of the road. It's like that is the wanderer by the side of the road, informing himself the road of life and development. Like that's us. It speaks deeply to that.
1: I would also I'd, I I uh, I mean everyone. This is probably the most most famous, but I I do really enjoy the scene in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas when. Uh, When they first arrive in Vegas and he he'd eaten like half a sheet of uh, blotter acid on the way there and they were racing against the clock to check into their hotel room before it kicked in. But it was too late. And by the time they got there, they made him go sit in the bar and everyone was becoming like uh, reptilian. (laughs) It's just very well directed and cool and funny, but, you know, very unlike anything I've experienced. I've never had anything of of that nature, but uh, shit, moving on, man. Why does the government prefer to have the population on antidepressants and alcohol as opposed to plant medicine?
2: It keeps you divorced from the true nature of self as opposed to uniting with it, which the plant medicines allow you to do.
1: Yeah, it makes you a more effective drone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah I
1: like your way of putting it better.
3: Yeah.
1: Uh, and the last and most important question, John, man, where can people check you out? Where can they find your books? Where can they read these books and, uh, you know, like get deeper into what we've been talking about
2: and huh? absorb. Yeah. Thank you. It's uh, just traveling. is the website. All of the books are linked up there and they'll take you to Amazon. They're almost all available in all forms, Kindle, paper, and audio. So traveling, And there's also a new podcast. I just started traveling. Nobodies there on that same site, which is basically just uh, us doing this people sitting down, comparing notes and figuring out a little bit more about the world and our, our place. Awesome. Thanks, Vince. So,
1: all right, so everybody, once again, that is TravelingNobody.net. Um uh, the podcast is Travelling Nobodies. Mm-hmm. And uh shit man, I guess like a lot of people like uh communicate with me through Instagram. Mm-hmm. So just in, just in case if you're on there, you can just click on John's picture. He's tagged in it. You can go straight to there and I, I guess you I assume you have links on there as well. Mm-hmm. Just I do. Yes. To the for, website, yes. for the very very lazy people that don't want to type anything. <laughs> All right, man. Well, I high, highly recommend these books to everyone, and uh, John, thank you so much for being on the podcast, man.
2: Thank you, man. I appreciate your time.
1: Thank you for listening to My Views of My Own. If you want to contact me, you can go to com. You can hit me up on Instagram at Own underscore podcast. You can hit me up at Twitter, at myviewsaremyown. My- My views underscore podcast. I say that every I fuck that up every time, don't I? Anyway, what really matters is that the outro song for this episode is "Nova Halo," Astral Plane live from the Pleiades. So, without further ado, I bring to you Astral Plane live from the Pleiades.